We'll pick up in verse 15 and finish chapter 8. Now, again, reminding yourselves that these sections, this, this last couple of chapters, has really been God explaining to us the world that we live in, why it looks the way it does, the way it functioned previous to the flood, and what we, we can expect the world to look like after the flood. And there's a couple of very important passages of Scripture that we need to take a look at tonight, and we'll do that uh, in addition to Genesis chapter 8. But before we do that, let's pick up in verse 15. And it says there, And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so this is the brave new world. This is, this is the world that's after the flood. Uh, the flood has transformed and changed the face of the earth. And, and it now does not look like it used to look prior to the flood. All kinds of upheaval has occurred. and We'll look at some of those things in a few minutes. But verse 18 says, So Noah went out and his sons, his wife, his sons' wives with him, and every animal, creeping thing, and every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. And remember that the ark is a picture of Jesus. It's a, a type of Christ, if you will. They have been saved. Uh, they were saved by grace. They were sealed in by God. They were protected by God. And they have now been brought out into a new life. So when we say that we are new creations in Christ, you can actually look at this particular picture and say that's really typifying what has happened here to Noah and his family. They were previously in a world that was dying. They were saved from that world through being hidden in the ark, which is a type of Christ. They were atoned for by God. The ark was covered. And because the ark was covered, they were covered because they were inside of the ark. They've now been brought out, and they're going to be brought out as a new creation. The world is not the same as it was previously. So this is a picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus. They're now going to come out of the ark, and they're going to... I've been trying to sneeze for an hour. Excuse me? So far, I'm winning. The sneeze is trying, but... Maybe I'll just go for it next time and totally blow the mic up. But they've now come out of the ark into this brave new world. Into this world is not like the world that they had previously been in. But that world has not been annihilated. And I think there's an important distinction to make here. It's simply been radically altered. The face of the earth has been transformed. It was not completely destroyed. This is not a completely new earth, just like we are not completely new in Christ. We are completely transformed, though, and so the world is completely transformed. It does not look like what it used to look like. It, it will not function the way it used to function, and the same is true for us in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. Behold, old things are passing away, present tense, perfect. So when you're a new creation in Christ, you're actually becoming better. And each day, that process of sanctification going on in your life. And so the world now is also going to become, in that sense, better each day as it grows and the world is repopulated with plants and animals and all those things. So this is a picture 
uh, of our new lives in Christ. Verse 20, And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is the first use of the word altar. So the law first mentioned, it now will proceed and how we, it will be the, the type for everything else that follows where the word altar is mentioned. And so this altar is built to the Lord. And there he's going to offer up the burnt offerings. And he took of every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now this seems kind of tragic. People will say, you know, well, why did God immediately have Noah kill some of the animals that survived in the ark? It almost seems like, you know, why would he do that? There's a real simple explanation. Those animals would have been precious to Noah. They would have been extremely valuable to Noah. And so this is a huge step of faith for Noah because he is going to have to let go of that which is probably most important to him. He doesn't have an infinite supply. He doesn't know if there's going to be more of these animals immediately. And so he is being obedient to God. He's doing exactly what God asked him to do. And so he is going to sacrifice those things which are necessary for his own survival. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although, and this is important, remember Noah is still of Adam's seed. Noah is not of a different kind. He came from Adam. So what exists in Noah is that unfortunate but absolutely prevalent evil imagination that each one of us still has today. We call it the doctrine of original sin. I'll never curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I destroy again every living thing as I have done. And so God is now going to set forth a new paradigm for us to look at. And he does so by reminding us of a single thing that exists to this day, And that is the present day hydrologic cycle that we see on the face of the earth and the seasons as we now see them. So summer, spring, winter, fall, and rain. But rain as a good thing instead of a bad thing. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So he tells us that there's going to be seed time and harvest time. There's going to be winter, summer. There's going to be cold and heat. The world was temperate before. There was not cold and heat. There was just nice. Now there's cold and heat. And now there's going to be a a very specific way that man's going to relate to that. It's going to be a work day. And it's going to be day and night. And those things shall not cease. So a brave new world that now has come into existence. So this new world that now exists. And again... I think it's super important for us to to look at what God is trying to say to us in this passage. Remember, there's a couple of ways that you can interpret the book of Genesis. One is, it's this story, it's meant to be largely symbolic, it, it, it is not historic, it doesn't contain scientific fact, or you can look at it as though God's actually trying to tell us what he did. And so the world that we look at should have some resemblance of this process that was undertaken as God destroys or annihilates the world that once was 
And now it's a completely different world. I want you to turn now, if you would, to Second Peter. Second Peter. So very near the end of the New Testament. Second Peter. It's right before First John. We'll look at chapter three. Because the New Testament actually bears witness that what we saw in the book of Genesis is true. Furthermore, it actually predicts what would happen in the very last days in that people would begin to say the flood never happened. Furthermore, it actually predicts that the prevailing thought would be that all things are as they have always been, or the theory of uniformitarianism. Pick up in verse 1. Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, uh, in both which I stir up pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Verse 3. Knowing this First, so the establishment of the understanding of the things that were spoken by the prophets with regard to those things which they said, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Now, if you want to walk according to your own lust, you have a couple of problems. One of them is God doesn't want you to. The second thing is the Bible is the source of the moral code by which humanity is supposed to exist. So if you can deal with the moral code, if you can in essence deal with getting rid of God by making the word of God of no effect, then you can have your own way. You can live in essence in an existential relativistic environment. You can just make up your own rules, in other words. And so what does it say? The scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, and I want you to notice this. Look at it very carefully. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What that says is this, that the scoffers will say that since the beginning of mankind's sojourn on the face of the earth, that all things will continue as they were from the beginning. That's what the scoffers will say. That's what those who don't want to acknowledge God will say, and that is exactly what uniformitarianism does. It says all things have been from the beginning exactly as they are today. And in fact, that's not true. Because the flood radically altered the face of the earth, It changed the dynamics of our planet. And in fact, it altered the very shape and face of the earth in such a way that all things are not the same as they were from the beginning. But your Bible says that's what the scoffers will say. Those who don't want to deal with the fact that there is a creator. Now notice how it continues. For this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth was standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that was then existed perished, being flooded with water. So the reference point to this period of time that mankind is going to eventually say 
all things have been the same in is the flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Oh, beloved, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So here you have in the New Testament a reference to the flood of Noah to a period of time that would be in the last days when the prevailing thought would be, let's do away with the fact that there have been two different worlds in essence. One that was before the flood and one that is after the flood because those last days scoffers will say there was no flood. They willingly forget that there was a flood because the evidence is everywhere. So as you think on that, Let's take a look at what I think the Lord would have us glean from this passage tonight. You see, the world wasn't annihilated. It was simply altered. But it was altered radically. It was not kind of just brushed over with a light brush. The face of the earth and everything on it is completely changed from when God created it. So the world that you see today and I see today and we see today and has been seen for the last several thousand years is the world that existed after the flood, not the world that existed before the flood. And so this preservation of man, this this land that before the flood was teeming with animals and teeming with plants and was this beautiful Edenic environment to where Adam and Eve didn't even need clothes. Now think about it for a second. When you think about Adam and Eve, we, we kind of joke a little bit that they wandered around in the garden naked, but it was because they didn't need clothes. The environment, it wasn't cold, it wasn't hot, they didn't need to be shielded from ultraviolet radiation, they were not going to freeze to death, it didn't get down in the 30s. It, it was a place where they were comfortable in their skin. But the world becomes a mess because of sin. The air that was formerly nice, gentle breezes now has strong winds, now has hydrologic cycles that are going to cause the earth to change from season. Notice it says winter and summer. It gives the two most extreme. Spring's pretty close to summer. That's not all that extreme. But when you go from winter to summer, it's extreme. One of the things that we used to always kind of joke about is people, you know, very often forget that here in Southern California, we actually have some of the harshest temperature variances that exist on the planet Earth. Where we lived in Running Springs, we'd be at the camp. It would be at night. Sometimes we'd get below zero, and you could drive down to San Bernardino, and it was still 75. I mean, you're talking an 80-degree temperature difference between night and day. Now imagine that Adam and Eve have never experienced those types of things. So the world is transformed not just geologically, but the climate's changed. But God is going to spare them. God's going to make a way. God's going to change things so that they're now going to be brought into this new environment. And, and all of this, remember, there's a reason that God does this. God doesn't just go, you know, I just really don't like the way you're behaving right now. 
No, it was the heart of man was continually evil, so much so that man was going to destroy himself. And so God steps into the situation, and he, in essence, in the flood, is dealing with sin. So the flood presents to us the consequences of sin, and I think it's important to look at some of the things that happen. Before there were no oceans, now you have oceans. There's a couple of really good things that oceans do. It makes it possible to surf, amen? So you can get out there and you can enjoy the way. I mean, that's kind of nice. But the oceans separate geographically a whole lot of people, don't they? And in fact, many of the Earth's problems exist because we have been isolated on different continents and you have different lifestyles on those continents and those continents become in conflict one with another. So the oceans actually became a barrier to mankind, in essence, being kind one to another because we lived right next door to one another across the entire globe. And it would bring about the the condensation, in essence, of the livable space or the habitable space on the planet. So now now you have people living in greater concentrations next to one another. You you have the advent of, in essence, real cities and urbanization of the planet. This breakdown of this thermal blanket that used to protect the earth and this wonderful climate that existed before the flood, now you've got temperature extremes. You've got part of the earth is going to be too hot, Part of it's going to be too cold. Part of it will have ice. Part of it will be desert. So you have surfaces that are uninhabitable on both extremes. For those of you who have never had the opportunity to be at high altitude, uh, you know, you can be in the middle of the summer and all of a sudden here comes a snowstorm. You don't survive in that type of environment indefinitely. That's why uh, the Native Americans, the First Nations people here, even in California, were smart enough to spend their summers up in the high Sierras, and they spent their winters down in the Owens Valley because they had to get away from those temperature extremes. Before the flood, that didn't happen. Those uplifted mountains, even elevation caused some of those changes. Storm, winds, rain. Probably some of you have seen the... We just had two avalanches here in California. It took a couple of people's lives. Uh, before the flood, those things didn't happen. And so now you have those types of things. One of the things that I praise God I've been delivered from is shoveling snow. You know, most of us here in Southern California have no idea what it's like to wake up every single morning and have to clear your driveway to even get your vehicle out of your driveway so you can go to work. So you spend two hours shoveling snow that weighs 35 to 40 pounds per shovel full here in Southern California because it's wet, it's heavy, it's ugly. All those types of things now exist. Life was going to get much more difficult. And you were going to have to be very selective about where you set up your home. There's all kinds of things that, that would now be on the face of the earth that they didn't have to deal with before. Like volcanic activity that was now uh, fairly common. and is common here, especially in the Pacific Rim, the Ring of Fire. Glacial scouring and valleys and things that were used to be able to just walk straight across. There's a number of places here in California if you drive to the middle of the High Sierras. If you happen to be on the west side of the High Sierras and you want to go to the east side of the High Sierras, uh, we've got a 120-mile stretch where there's no road because it's too steep. There happens to be a couple of national parks in there as well, but the fact of the matter is it'd be nearly impossible to put roads across those because of the glacial canyons and all the things that exist. So those things came about as God saying, look, I'm going to make life a little bit tough for you. I gave you an ideal environment and you messed with it. So I'm going to make it a little bit harder for you. And maybe that test 
will help you trust me. Anybody ever learn to trust God because of a test? I have. Matter of fact, that's the chief way I've learned to trust God. Those things haven't gone the way that I've hoped they would, they would go. They've been a lot more difficult at times. And so God brings that into existence. He also begins to lay down the, the ways that we would be able to relate uh, to the fossil record here on this earth. Uh, and so a couple of things are important for us. And one is that your Bible plainly declares that there was no death until Adam. And so when you think about that, if you were with us in our study in Romans in chapter 5, it says this, very important, verse 12, Romans 5, we'll take down to verse 14, therefore, just as through one man's sin, one man's sin entered the world, and through and death through sin, in other words, death came into the world because of sin. Before that, Man was created in the image of God. There was no death. There was no dying. Adam and Eve were created as eternal beings. And it was the sin that they undertook that brought about death. So if you had billions of years where God was allowing death, then this passage written by the Apostle Paul would be a lie. Because your Bible plainly states... That and thus, because of that, death spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, the reason we actually die. When people ask you, why don't you live forever? You can just tell them, because I'm a sinner. Because death comes to us because of sin. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. In other words, when Adam and Eve had not yet sinned, they had zero understanding of sinfulness. It was not until they sinned that they understood sin. In other words, the first law was, do not eat of that tree. But they did. So they chose to break the law. And nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In other words, they weren't totally rebellious. They just were born in sin, just as we all are today who is a type of him who was to come. So what we see in the world today is the record of the Lord's work here on this earth to create a world that is now a jumbled mess that did not exist when Adam and Eve were on this earth. And in that you have miles thick, and I mean miles thick, layers of sediment laid down all over the globe, and in some cases in that sediment are trillions and trillions and trillions of dead things. And those dead things have become fossilized. As we've looked at before, the only way for fossils to exist is you have to have rapid burial and you have to have mineralization of things that would normally, if left out in the sun, would rot and decay. You cannot leave things out in the sun and have them turn into fossils. They don't do that. You may end up with a skeleton, That skeleton may be preserved, but it will not be embedded and impregnated with rock. It will not be, in essence, rock. And that's what a fossil is. A fossil is actually a rock that is shaped like the animal that has now been impregnated with the the actual minerals that are in the sand that it's buried in, or the sediment that it's buried in. So when you look at the world, what do you see? 
You see billions and billions of dead things, trillions and trillions of dead things, all laid down in massive layers. And the unfortunate part is, exactly as Peter said, the way people interpret that who do not want to believe in God is there must be some type of logical order to this to where these dead things progressed one from another. We call that the theory of evolution, specifically Darwinian evolution, very specifically macroevolution, where you have one kind turning into another kind. And so when you look at the fossil record, you should find the least uh, of the, in other words, the the animals that are of the uh, least ordered, microscopic things like blue-green algae and then, you know, little brachiopods and all kinds of mollusks and those types of things on the bottom. And as you get higher, because they would be older, you should have the very largest things, the most complex things. Here's the problem. You can find every layer of fossilized activity both at the top and at the bottom, depending on where you go in the globe. It's all churned up. It is not the same. It's not even close to universally the same. And in fact, specifically in the Andes and the Himalayas, you have almost the entire fossil record turned on its head. It's upside down. So if the case is that evolution took place over millions and or billions of years with regard to animal life, billions if you're talking about going from blue-green algae to man, if that happened then it's impossible for it to be upside down. It cannot be that those two things are true. So if it's upside down, evolution didn't happen. And even if it's right side up, there is another explanation for how those things got that way. And it's called the flood. So what we see in the flood is, I believe, the testimony of God doing exactly what he said he did which is he destroyed the world by flood of water. And in doing so, churned up the surface of the earth, transformed it into the world that we see now, and now all of the things that we see going on in the face of the earth are, in essence, fairly stable. So the depositation rates, the erosion rates, the radioactive decay rates, all of those things from after the flood now are all fairly stable. Pick up in verse 15, and what we see really is the glimpses of God's grace. And that's the good news. See, all of this, who did it and why did he do it, should lead us to the question of why would God do this in the first place? Why would he care? Because God is a gracious God. He would have been completely justified in wiping out everybody, including Noah and his family. But this is exactly how gracious God is. He takes Noah and his family, those who were right before the Lord, as best as we could possibly be at that point in time, and he says, look, I, I, I want to I save you. I want you to see this. Verse 15, and then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife. Now remember, in chapter 7, he said, come into the ark. So he says, come, and he says, go. He said, go out of the ark. You and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that's with you, birds and cattle and creeping things and all that's on the earth. And Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, and every animal and every creeping thing and every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, 
went out of the ark. And so now Noah's going to leave. Now, there's a picture here, and it's kind of the picture of how you and I come to faith in Christ because we have to come unto him to be able to be sent out by him. In other words, you have to first be a believer before you can go out and, and proclaim the gospel. And so he's giving us a glimmer of grace here. He's picturing kind of our relationship, how it always is with him. He invites us to come in, and then he sends us out. And, and this whole time they were, in essence, held in this gigantic sheepfold, the very thing that John chapter 10 says that, that all have to come into. You have to come into his sheepfold in order to be saved. You, you have to be in that Christ who is the door in order to be one of his sheep. And so these things all kind of picture how we get saved. And, and when we do this, then we go in and we go out according to that wonderful pasture that God's had planned for us all along. And so he says, look, after this long rest, after you're in the ark, you guys can now go out and, and you can populate this new earth that now is, is before you. And I want you to think about it for a second. It would not have been an easy thing. If you, if you ever get an opportunity to see an area after a flood occurs, it's pretty much an uninhabitable area. It's kind of like a desert. And it takes a while for plant life and animal life to come back into that region because what you have is, is in essence, silt. And silt is, though it's clean, there's not much debris in it, generally speaking. It's usually on the top. It's also not very fertile. So, at, so here Noah is going to have a tough time scratching out a living. And so he sends out all of these animals and they gradually spread out from Ararat where they have landed and they begin to migrate over the general area, but they're going to stick fairly close because that's the first area uh, that has some plant life growing on it. And, and certainly there are other areas that are already drying out as well, but they're going to begin now kind of this, this great migration. Whether we like to look at it this way or not, when you look at animal life on earth, there are, there are not as many different types of species as one would think. As we looked at before, there are approximately 18,000 different species on the face of the earth. And by species, we're talking about unique, individual things like lizards and birds. Not all the different types of birds and not all the different types of lizards, but the fact that there are different species of animals that are unique in and of themselves. When you look at the difference between horses and cows, bovine species, equine species. We're looking at those specific things. And interestingly enough, when you look at all the largest species of animals, they also have the fewest members of their particular genus and species, their kingdom, their phylum. So there's very few species of horses. There's, there's only six species of elephants on the, entire, on the entire globe. There's only two of hippopotami. They're, they're, there's only four camels. So the bigger they get, the fewer of them there are because they take up a bunch of space. And so if you were thinking about sending out animals after a flood, uh, what you would expect in a world that hasn't been around for billions of years is that the most amount of change would be in the smallest animals. And that is exactly what you see in the world. The smaller the animal is, the more diversity there is in the way that they have micro-evolved. In other words, wing length and color. Uh, very specific to their particular geographic region. 
At this time, there also would have been uh, what we now believe to be true, a number of land bridges, one in Malaysia, another one in the Bering Straits. And so there was some ability for migration to occur continent to continent, even though those places today are covered by water. At that time, highly likely that they were uplifted. The waters have now settled out, canyons deepened, and those land bridges disappear. Um, but they were able to migrate and wander all over the earth, and eventually as they uh, begin to spread out, they begin to populate the world. Uh, and we look at you know, the, the rates of animals dying, you would have had much less mutation. You would have had very few diseases, if any. And so those things, as they increase, they decrease the, the rapid spread of animal life. But at that time, they would have spread out very quickly, as would have mankind. And so they begin to migrate, and their DNA kind of controls the, the species that they are. They're kind, uh, but microevolution allows them to adapt to the environment that they're wandering around in. And so that is what we see in the world today. Uh, but the important part is, is that now Noah's going to turn his family towards the Lord. That's the lesson, spiritual lesson, in this particular uh, section of the book of Genesis. And whether you think there were dinosaurs or you don't think there were dinosaurs at the same time as man one thing we know for sure God spared Noah for a reason and he did so so that you and I could have a look at how much he hates sin he hates sin because sin always destroys sin always kills and that was the problem that Noah had to really overcome because he was still a sinner. His sons were sinners. Their wives were sinners. And they were going to produce a whole bunch of little sinners. And so the question was, what would they do differently than what happened in the world previously? And so it's interesting to me that the very first thing that we find Noah doing is saying we need to get something straight here. There's going to be one God, there's going to be one Lord, and we are going to worship Him. And we're going to give Him the best of everything. Even if it costs us, we're going to trust God. And so Noah builds an altar to the Lord, and he takes of every clean animal and every clean bird and every burnt offering, and he takes it before the altar. And ever since Eden, the way of access to God had been by sacrifice in essence. Once Adam and Eve kind of messed things up, after that, they'd, they'd been sacrificing to the Lord. But they hadn't learned a lesson. It was all just external. And so he proceeds to say, you know, we need to make this right. We've got to make God first. And so he gives thanksgiving, he gives deliverance. And the way God receives this, we understand this, he, God is, this is a sweet aroma to God. So this sacrifice was accepted by God. Whatever Noah did, we're not told in detail. But it was soothing to the Lord, so much so that he says, even in spite of the fact that mankind's heart still has a propensity towards evil, and we still have a propensity towards evil, the curse that has been pronounced on the earth, God says, look, I, I've, I've done what I'm going to do. But there's still the lingering consequences of that curse. And that's the second passage I want you to look at. If, you're, if you have your finger still in Romans, you can just flip to chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8. Because in referring to this particular passage of Scripture, 
God says, look, the, the world as it is today is still not the finished product. That's why when people get overly excited about environmental issues, now look, I want to tell you, in, in my deepest part of my soul, I love God's creation. So I am absolutely for taking care of his creation. But we could take care of the creation till the cows literally come home. We, we could save every tree and every river, and this earth is still going to perish. We are not going to save this earth. Not because I don't want it to, and not because we are using up too much carbon, and not because we're polluting our environment, but because this earth has an expiration date on it. God says so. And one day he's going to destroy this entire earth. But it will not be because he's angry, but because he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be better than the one that we're currently on. So check out what he says. Pick up in verse 18. For consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation as it eagerly waits the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, our, our current creation is under a whole bunch of pressure because we're a bunch of sinners who need a savior. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption. You see what it says? It says one day God's actually going to free the creation itself, the earth itself, the plant life, the animal life, from the mess it is because of what mankind has done, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting the adoption and redemption of the body. You see, what God is really saying is, this world is not the finished product. God's actually going to rework this one as well. But he's not going to do it as he did in this as a penalty uh, for the curse. He says, look, you, you guys are messing up. He's going to do it for a good reason. He's going to give us evidence in essence of his goodness. Man's perverse. Man's still depraved. Man is still distorted the evidence and looked at things and said, there is no God. But God's still pouring out his grace on this earth, on you and on me. And so that we would know that as an evidence of his goodness, he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. He basically says, look, here's how you can know that the age of grace is still going on. This is one of the ways that you can see it. You're still here. We're still on this planet. And while we still have opportunity, while we're still on this planet, while there's still a winter and still a summer and there's still cold and still heat and there's still a hydrologic cycle that keeps us from overheating and, and dying because of our own foolishness, this, as long as you see that, you've still got some time. There's still some grace available. That's his goodness. God's basically saying, look, I, I'm going to set up a system whereby you're going to be able to see these things fairly clearly. 
You know, it's interesting to me. I, I was talking to a guy, and he just, you know, he was reminding me of his Ph.D., and I said, well, that's great, and I actually appreciate the amount of time that you put into getting that. And I said, can you tell me something? Have, have you been reading any of the stuff that's going on in Greenland right now? For those of you that don't know, uh, Greenland is covered with ice, and Iceland is green. So uh, why they named it that, I don't have any idea. But for the last about 20 years, everybody's been going, the ice caps, the ice caps, the ice caps, the ice caps, they're all melting, and we're all going to die. You've probably all heard the same story. Now, while I will agree that there is some level at which man is responsible for the heating of our atmosphere, that's almost without contest, it is not going to be the reason that we perish. We're not going to need to go to Mars because of that. And the reason we know that is they did a series of ice corings on Greenland. And for about the last 50 years or so, they've believed that the level at which ice is laid down in Greenland, uh, there's approximately three or 400,000 years worth of ice. They had a real problem. They were doing an ice coring, and about 250 feet down, they found a World War II plane, and they cored right through it. And so they brought up aluminum. They said, well, that's kind of interesting because that's supposed to be 180,000 years ago. So as long as there's seed time and harvest time and snow and rain and sleet and all kinds of things going on, uh, we know that God's grace continues. He, he keeps refreshing our planet. He keeps making it possible for us to live here. Uh, yes, there are places that are warmer than they were last year, and there are places that are colder than they were last year. And God balances all those things out in heaven. But one day, the age of grace is going to be over. But it's not going to be over because we destroyed the planet. It's going to be over because God said, man, once again, Jesus' words, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. It will not be environmental issues. It will be sin issues again that causes God to say enough. So if you want a secret to here and now, Tell people about Jesus. Because if they come to faith in Christ, they will be saved from what's coming ahead because this world is going to be destroyed again. And you don't want to be here when that happens. The good news is, for believers, he's going to rapture the church before it happens. Then there's going to be a period of time, seven years, where the world's going to come undone. And then there's going to be a thousand-year reigns of Christ. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. You want to be part of that new kingdom, the, the one in which righteousness dwells. God's got a perfect plan. He absolutely is not going to destroy the world by flood again. So all this crazy talk that the sea levels are going to go up and the land is going to disappear uh, and we're all going to you know, drown because we're too close to the coast of California is just an unbiblical view. And while the sea levels may rise, it's not going to destroy mankind. That is paranoia based on scientific evidence that is in existence today, but may not exist next week, next month, next year. So trust God. Bless God. Rely on the grace of God. The Bible said all along that these things will be so, and that God has a plan in it, and he's going to save us from it. And so as he's worked in all these things, keeping us to this point, 
You know, it's interesting to me. I was looking at a map of the deserts in the northern half of Africa. And actually the deserts themselves in a couple of places have expanded. But by and large, they've actually shrunk. There's actually more arable land in Africa than there was a century ago. Uh, You've got this incredible glacier that's just calved off of the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, a glacier that's half the size of the state of New Jersey uh, just went into the sea. And for the last two years, they've been saying, well, when that happens, the world's sea levels are going to go up by 18 inches. Um, it went up less than a centimeter. So God's got it. He's going to take care of us tell people about Jesus. Amen? Worship team's going to come back up. And we're going to close in song. Father, we thank you that you do have all this under control, that seed time and harvest time and cold and heat and winter and summer, day and night are not going to cease. It's not going to be because you'll destroy the earth again. You're going to come and do what you need to do before that ever happens. And so, Lord, we rest and trust in the good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you for saving Noah. It's a picture of how you've saved us in Christ and We just ask, God, that you would continue to work uh, in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Help us to be people that honor you with our lives, with our time and talent and treasure. Uh, Lord, we praise praise you that Noah chose to, to build an altar. Lord, would we build altars to you as well? Lord, not out of stone, but altars where our hearts are pure before you, where our lives are offered up as living sacrifices. We thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, and ask that you would now have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.